Well, this morning we begin a short three-week series entitled, What's So Good About the Good News? And next week, as I already mentioned, we've got our Remembrance Sunday guest service where Ian Lancaster is going to be speaking on good news in troubled times. Then two weeks' time, we've got a World Mission Sunday with Jim Sayers of Grace Baptist Mission. And he'll be speaking on good news for the world. And this morning, we're going to be looking at this portrait of Jesus we get in John chapter 4 under the ambitious heading, Good News Worth Living For. And you might have spotted a theme running through the next three Sundays, a Christian belief that can both attract and actually repel the world around us. See, Christians insist that we have good news for the world. Good news to share, good news that can be welcomed by the whole world. And that is such a bold claim for anyone to make. So how can Christians seriously make that claim? Because the question of whether we receive a piece of news as good or bad depends almost entirely on someone's point of view. So in the ancient world, news would be broadcast of a great military victory. And those on the winning side would rejoice in that victory. It was good news to them. But those who'd either openly or secretly hoped for the other side to win, well, well, it wasn't good news. It was bad news for them. The same piece of news can be received in so many different ways. We see the same phenomenon in our world today, whether in the realm of politics, is an election result a good um, bit of news or a bad bit of news? We see it in a sporting result. Who happens to win? Is that good or bad? We see it in a, in a mother's decision, what she's going to cook for dinner. And when I was young, um, when chili con carne was announced as the meal, everyone in my family rejoiced except me. Because I, I hated chili con carne. It was not good news for me. See, how can Christians honestly claim they have good news for everyone to hear? Well, according to the New Testament, the good news of Christianity stands or falls on the identity of one man, Jesus of Nazareth. So how can Christians claim to offer hope in a world marred by war and death and violence? Because Jesus of Nazareth assured his followers that this world would not have the final say. But thanks to Jesus, he was preparing a glorious new world for those who trusted him, free from war and death and violence. The hope of Christians depends on Jesus. Or how can Christians celebrate when they look out at a world that is marked by so much prejudice and mistrust and hostility between nations and people groups? But because Jesus of Nazareth assured his followers that he was calling people from every tribe and language and people group and tongue to follow him. And as we look out at the world around us, we see the global church growing, even today. See, the good news Christians insist they have for the world stands or falls on whether we can trust the words of Jesus of Nazareth. If Jesus is who he says he is, then he alone is able to back up those promises, to back up this message of good news, of life, of love, of peace, of forgiveness for those who come to him. 
If he's not who he claims to be, then we can just move on and leave the good news of Christianity to one side. Well, this morning we've already had read to us this bit of John's Gospel, John chapter 4. We have this incident of Jesus in action, his encounter with a Samaritan woman. And in one sense we could have looked at any one of countless encounters Jesus had with people recorded in the four Gospels. But, but for me, this one is just, just remarkable. It's so rich. We're not going to have time to plumb much of it. But it tells us so much about Jesus. I want to suggest that as we look at the Samaritan woman, we actually see so much of ourselves in her. And above all, by looking at Jesus in John 4, we learn an enormous amount about the God in whom Christians believe. Because in his encounter with the Samaritan woman, Jesus challenges her assumptions about the God of the Bible. Because see, the Samaritan woman here, she seems to believe that there is a God, as most people did in the first century, and as arguably most people still do today. But to her, the God of the Jews, the God of the Bible, was, was far from praiseworthy. God was confusing. He was difficult. And the Samaritan woman believed she was actually better off keeping him at arm's length from her life. But as the conversation between Jesus and this woman develops, it becomes clear. Jesus is revealing a very different God to the one the Samaritan woman presumed she knew. In fact, I want to suggest this morning that in Jesus' discussion with the woman at the well, Jesus is revealing the only God truly worth worshipping in this world. The only God worth knowing and making known is the God that Jesus reveals to us. You see, the Samaritan woman, she's not unlike people living today. She's not unlike us. Everyone in this world is looking for a God worth worshipping. And the world around us offers so many gods. Every single human being is created with an overwhelming desire to worship something or someone, whether a loved one, a way of life, an aspiration. It could be something we already have, someone already in our lives, or something or someone we want in our lives. We have an amazing selection of gods to choose from in our search for something to worship. And looking around East Oxford, we can easily spot a number of these gods. The gods of respectability and security. If you just work hard enough for a time, you do your bit for society, for your employers, for the powers that be, then you will be rewarded with a life free from worry, a home of your own, a partner or even children who are better off than you were at their age, a life of financial security. It's a God who offers us so much. Or there's the gods of of non-conformity and personal liberty. Don't spend your time working hard for the powers that be. Live for today. Live for the moment. And you'll be rewarded with a life of personal freedom, a life of integrity. And the sense that whatever you end up with, well, at least you'll have achieved it yourself. So these are sort of seductive gods 
at first glance, they actually offer us a great deal. They appear to be gods worth worshipping. But we scratch beneath the surface and it is a very different story. To the gods of respectability, well, they're exhausting to live for. You let the mask slip for a moment. You, you make a mistake a moment and they will reject you. The gods of respectability are not very hot on forgiveness. You have to live up to their standards. The gods of security, well, they're always out of reach. We never do seem to get to that point where we're free from worry or anxiety. And the gods of non-conformity and personal liberty, well, they demand that we develop very thick skin. Because then we won't mind when our personal triumphs, our personal victories, often cause unhappiness to those around us. We have to learn just to, to block that out if we're going to find any satisfaction just living for ourselves. See, the gods this world has to offer, they're, they're a slippery bunch. And when you really look at them, they actually take far more than they give to us. And this Samaritan woman had experienced something of that in her life. Just look at verses 17 to 18. Jesus speaking to her. Verse 16, sorry. Jesus told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. The man you now have is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Jesus meets this woman and he sees the gods she has been worshipping. And they've taken the shape of a succession of men who promised her love, acceptance, protection, security. But every time she allowed herself to believe she'd find the right one, things fell apart. We don't know if she was repeatedly abandoned by these men what role she might have played in those relationships falling apart. What we do know is that here Jesus meets her at a well at the sixth hour, verse 6. That's noon, the hottest time of the day. And we need to get something about that detail. Because it was common practice for women in the Middle East, and it still is today, to draw water from a well either in the early morning or the early evening, in the cool of the day, when the sun had gone down a bit, carrying a full water jar was, was, a, was a more doable prospect at that point of the day. But this woman chooses to draw water at noon, the hottest time of the day. It seems clear that she is avoiding her fellow townspeople. She purposely avoids those times of day when others are at the well. See, the woman Jesus meets here knows all about how unforgiving our world can be. She knows all about gossip and prejudice in this world. And even as Jesus identifies, she risks another relationship with a man in the town who's not her husband. She knows that chances are that relationship may well just go the end the way all the others did, sorry. At some point in the future, she will be left on her own, labelled as damaged goods again. 
And it's to this woman. A woman who has seen through the hollowness of all that the gods of this world have to offer. That Jesus chooses to reveal the only God worth worshipping. See, in this Gospel, John, back in chapter 1, has already made clear why Jesus came into the world. And it was to reveal the character of the invisible gods to us. John 1, verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only who's at the Father's side, has made him known. See, Jesus reveals the character of the living God. When we look at Jesus, we see what God is like. And the good news we're thinking about this morning is that as we look at Jesus, we discover that the living God is good and he's worthy of our worship and our trust, even when no other God is. God is alive and he is worth worshipping. That is the message Jesus gives this Samaritan woman. The message Jesus gives us today. So again, we're not going to look at every detail of the portrait of God that Jesus gives the Samaritan woman here. What I want us to do is just tease out a few major brushstrokes, if you like, about the God that Jesus reveals here. And first of all, Jesus reveals a God who, who makes the first move. If you look at the beginning of the conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman here, let me just read from verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Let's try and picture the scene for a moment. I've already suggested this woman comes to the well at noon in order to avoid her fellow townspeople. So she may be shocked to see someone else at the well. But, but wait a minute, it's, it's a man. It's a Jewish man. Things are actually looking up for this woman. He's probably on his way from Judea to Galilee or vice versa. Either way, she's confident he's not going to talk to her. He'd rather die than be seen talking to her. So this means, great, she says, I can draw my water and be on my way. I want to talk to the man. He'll never learn anything about me. So she lowers her jar into the well and then this Jewish man speaks to her. Will you give me a drink? He says. And I always imagine if the woman almost drops her jar at this moment. This Jewish man is talking to me. Doesn't he know that Jewish men don't talk to Samaritan women? She actually gives him a little lesson in etiquette in verse 9. Stating the obvious, but she feels she needs to tell him. See, Jesus, he's a surprising Jewish man. But he's an even more surprising son of God. And in the coming of Jesus, just as in this encounter at the well, God makes the first move in salvation. God doesn't wait for us to come looking for him. In Jesus, God has come looking for us. 
You see, there's an attractive myth in our world today, and it's this, that we're all of us, in some shape or form, on a journey towards God. We're all looking for God. That's part of what it means to be human. And like a lot of myths, actually, there are elements of truth in that. So we've already said we are created with this desire to worship. There are many spiritually hungry people out there today. But substantially, the Bible paints a different picture even of those spiritually hungry people. In reality, we are not looking for God. God is looking for us. For our part and left to our own devices, we all naturally hide from God. It's like the Garden of Eden played out over and over again in history. Adam and Eve know they've sinned and they are terrified of meeting God. So they hide from God among the trees. They're not looking for God. They're trying to stay as far away from Him as they possibly can. But then God comes looking for them. Genesis 3 verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Where are you? I see, we see that scene played out again and again in Scripture. Sinful humanity on the run from God, God comes looking for them. To use a parable Jesus tells elsewhere, we are like lost sheep with little thought for our shepherd, little thought of the danger we're in away from our shepherd, but Jesus still comes looking for us. He's come to bring us back to his Father, to bring us back to a life lived in loving relationship with himself. In Jesus, God makes the first move in calling us into relationship with himself. Just as with the Samaritan woman here, so with all of us, God doesn't wait for us to come looking for him. He has come looking for us. And that makes him praiseworthy. See, what Jesus also reveals about God in speaking to this woman is that he is a God free from our prejudices. See, the social barriers Jesus is breaking in verse 9, they they were enormous. John tells us in quite sort of clipped tones that Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jews despised Samaritans. We, We just need to get that. They looked down on them. If they wanted to feel better about themselves, they could say, well, at least I'm not a Samaritan. Samaritans were a mongrel race to the Jews of Jesus' day. God had given up on them, the Jews believed, so they were quite entitled to do the same. But you see, Jesus reveals a different God to that. A God free from human prejudice. See, no one is too far gone for God, says Jesus. Not even an immoral Samaritan woman. And see, if we look here, it's, it's the way he relates to her. The respect and attention she gives her is actually breathtaking. I just invite you just to look over it again later. Just he, he talks with her. He listens with her. He asks for her help. Would you give me a drink? He takes her seriously. We can be left in no doubt at the end 
of this conversation. This woman matters to Jesus. No matter what her townspeople think of her, or her ex-husbands think of her, she matters to Jesus. He is free of their prejudices. And so is the God he is revealing to her. And that would just cause her to praise that God. It is glorious news. And it's glorious news today as well. It's easy for us to criticise the prejudices most first century Jews had towards their Samaritan neighbours because we aren't that bothered about that, really. It's easy to take the moral high ground and say, that's, that's terrible. The problem start, we need to acknowledge how blind people are to prejudice. Historically, there have been huge prejudices marking the church that most of the church has been oblivious to at the time. I grew up in Northern Ireland. You may have picked that up. And um, I came to faith in Jesus at a relatively young age. And actually, I met so many older, wiser Christians who taught me so much about what it means to love Jesus, what Jesus had done for me. It was, it was a wonderful thing to grow up in a Christian community like that. But they also taught me to mistrust those who were different from me, particularly in Northern Ireland, Roman Catholics. I came into contact with a lot of prejudice and sectarianism in my childhood. And these were men and women who loved Jesus Christ. We are all tainted by prejudice, even when we cannot identify what those prejudices are at the moment. See, we need to learn from Jesus and to ask God to free us from human prejudices that that even unconsciously may be affecting us. And I have to confess, actually, thinking about this, I just need to acknowledge the Lord hasn't actually given me any great insight about an equivalent prejudice that is haunting modern road at the moment. But we should always examine our hearts and compare them with Scripture. Because the first century Jews just didn't see this prejudice they had. The Christians I grew up with often just didn't see the prejudice they have. And we need to say, will we follow Jesus? Will we let him show us the path of love and care for people? And where we too might be victims of a prejudice that actually alienates those from this living God that Jesus reveals. So Jesus reveals a God free from our prejudices. And then he actually comes to what he's going to offer this woman um, in verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Then verse 13. Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. See, Jesus has an offer for this woman from this praiseworthy God he's revealing to her. He's not content just to 
let her look at this God from a distance to see, well, yes, he's, he's, he's great. He makes the first move. He's free from prejudice. No, he's actually offering her something if she will only take it. And what he offers her is living water. Now, a lot of ink has been spilt over the years as to what Jesus meant when he offered this woman living water. I believe he had at least two things in mind that we want to just explore briefly. You see, in the first century in Palestine, water was vital for at least two things, for, for quenching your thirst and for making you clean. And I think it's with both those ideas in mind that Jesus makes this offer. First of all, to make her clean. Because we've already seen that, that when Jesus meets this woman, at the time of day he does, that she is alienated from her townspeople because of her sense of shame and her past. She feels like an outcast among her townspeople because of her sexual past, and so she does her utmost to avoid them, to hide her past from them, if at all possible. But then in verse 16 and following, Jesus demonstrates that that doesn't work with him. She can't hide who she is from him. He knows all about it. And that has a huge impact on this woman. See her testimony in verse 29 to the other townspeople. She says, Come, see a man who has told me everything I ever did. Jesus knew all about the sin and shame in this woman's past. The amazing thing is how he deals with it. He doesn't just pass over it. He doesn't just ignore it and say, well, that doesn't matter. You're still special to me. He doesn't say, well, it's not really sin. Your your time people don't really get it. Let's just move on and live your life. But what he does do is he faces up to that past and he offers to make her clean. See, sin was a huge problem for this woman. And we don't have to decide for ourselves whether she was more a victim of the sins of others, namely her previous husbands, or whether she was fully complicit in the situation of shame she now finds herself in. Sin is blighting and ruining her life. Sinful actions she is responsible for, and the sinful actions of others towards her from which she was suffering the consequences. We see the living water Jesus offers can make her clean. He offers her new life and freedom from the power of sin. And he offers that because in a few short years, Jesus himself will go to a cross to free her from that sin. And he offers that same cleansing and freedom to us today. Again, I don't know what your biggest perception of sin is in your life. Whether you see your own sin more clearly. Things you have done and said, not done and not said. Or maybe you see the effects of the sins of others on your life. Maybe the sins of family, of, of loved ones, of, of people who just continually let you down and the consequences that you see there. Let me just say, 
what the Bible says everyone has been sinned against in their lives. And everyone has acted sinfully in their lives. Jesus can free us from both those consequences of sin. From our own culpability and perhaps from the consequences that we suffer from others. See, what the living God offers us through Jesus is living water to make us clean. And he can do that because he was willing to take that dirt and that shame onto himself at the cross. Jesus can make this woman clean, he tells her. Jesus can make us clean. And he can also satisfy our thirst. And a Samaritan woman like this, when she knew all about thirst, she knew about the scarcity of water, she knew about heat, she's talking to Jesus at noon, the hottest time of the day, and when Jesus initially offers her living water, verses 13 to 14, she almost sort of rips his arms off at the opportunity of that. Verse 15, she says, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. So I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. She knew all about thirst. But Jesus knew that there was a deeper thirst at work with this woman. And it was a thirst that could only be quenched through our relationship with the God who had made her. This woman has been searching her whole life for something worth trusting in, worth praising. Up to now, it has been the next man, the next relationship. And she had just presumed that she would never find what she was looking for in this God over whom Jews and Samaritans argued so vehemently. And in this, she is so similar to so many people in our world today. People just presume that the Christian God has been, has been tried and found wanting. You don't even need to look anymore, people think. That Christian God, he's just not worthy of worship. He's the God of imperialism, of, of slavery, of, of misogyny. But you see how different the God is that Jesus reveals here, and how different the God is when we actually read about him in the pages of Scripture. Jesus knows that what, that's what this woman needs here. Our relationship with the living God. Our relationship based on knowing God as Father. Let me just read from verse 23 to 24. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. See, Jesus is offering her this God and she can know him as father. She can know him as one of his children. His compassion on her when she makes mistakes. His discipline of her to teach her better to rely on him 
We always need to be clear that God is no indulgent father. He does discipline us when we're reckless and selfish, but only ever out of that solid bedrock of his love for his children. Only ever because his purposes for his children are good. And then Jesus says we can worship this God in spirit and in truth. In spirit, that God will give us the ability to worship him. That sense that we we don't naturally hunger for him and yet he will give us that hunger. We don't naturally see him, but through Jesus we can know what he's like. We don't naturally want to defeat sin in our lives, but through Jesus' work and the power of his spirit, we will actually start fighting against sin. We will actually grow in our knowledge of this God. And then we can know the truth about him. We're not left guessing about who God is. We aren't called into a blind faith. Jesus has revealed him to us. We can actually learn true things about him so we know that other things about him aren't true. We can see this God in the pages of Scripture, in the person of his Son. And we can worship him. The life of worship that we were created for. So John 4, Jesus reveals the only God worth worshipping. He's a God who makes the first move in salvation. A God who is free from our prejudices. A God who offers and is able to make us clean and to satisfy our thirst. And the question that faces us as we finish this morning is, how do we respond to that God? Again, I believe the Samaritan woman is standing in our place in this story. We all desperately need to see this God and to see He is worth worshipping. The gods of this world will just leave us as empty and thirsty as the constant relationships left this woman. So Jesus challenges us here. Turn away from those worthless idols. Turn away from those empty and hollow gods and turn towards the living God, the God revealed by Jesus. And find forgiveness in Him. Find your thirst quenched in knowing Him. And if we're already trusting in this God this morning, if you've already discovered something of His goodness and His graciousness and His forgiveness, then the challenge for us is, will we share this God with a thirsty world? Because one thing screams out at me in Jesus' dealing with this Samaritan woman, that this broken and thirsty world matters to God. Again, just see how Jesus treats this woman with such dignity, such respect, such care. We need to learn from Jesus what it means to love the people around us in East Oxford. And we need to see that what they need above all else 
is to see the living God that Jesus will reveal to them. In verses 35 to 38, Jesus calls his disciples into the harvest field. He has already met with a Samaritan woman. He has spoken to her. She has gone to get her townspeople to come and meet him too. But Jesus calls his disciples to follow him into the harvest field. Jesus has gone ahead of us. He calls us to join him. Jesus is the God who is making the first move, who is reaching out into this world. And he calls on his church, on his people, to come into that world too and to share who the living God is with them. That God is alive. That he is good and he is worthy of worship. And in Jesus, he has come near to us to make us clean and to quench our thirst. We've only skimmed over the surface of John 4. But I hope we can see this is a God worth worshipping. A God worth knowing. And a God worth making known.